0: Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1915, the 19th year of the VFL and a season held in the shadow of World War One. The war impacted all aspects of life. 20,000 men were already in service overseas and questions were being asked about those who had not yet enlisted in the service of the empire. Sport became a flashpoint. Some people campaigning for all sports to be cancelled, with all efforts focused on the war, while others said that people ought to have some semblance of normality and focused on the morale-boosting impact of regular sporting activity. Across the country, many events, competitions and leagues were cancelled or went into recess. These included the Sheffield Shield Cricket, the Australian Golf Open, Sydney's Rugby Union competition, although Rugby League continued, surf lifesaving and the swimming championships. The league had a number of issues to address early in 1915. The first was how to respond to the demise of the University Football Club. By a vote of 5-4, to it was decided to proceed with nine clubs, thus avoiding the issue of whether to invite a VFA team to join the league, North Melbourne and Footscray being the leading candidates, but they would have to wait their turn. The endeavour to develop a set of rules that would allow a hybrid game of rugby league and Australian rules to be established as a national football code continued to get some attention. It would have seen a crossbar introduced, allowed throwing the ball, but removed the scrum from the rugby side. The New South Wales Rugby League, the VFL, the Australian Football Council, all endorsed the adoption of these hybrid rules, with the time frame to be determined. The war derailed the project, and the dream of one football code across the country is yet to happen. The VFL annual general meeting in March considered the question of whether the season should be cancelled due to the war, but this was lost 13 votes to four. The president of the league, Mr Alex McCracken, also noted that £2,257 had been donated to the patriotic fund by the football community. This is the equivalent of over $240,000 in 2020 value, as per the Reserve Bank of Australia inflation calculator. Several players had already enlisted, and Alex McCracken said that the percentage of footballers that had enlisted was as great as the rest of the community of fighting age, and many of the remaining footballers were married with families. A number of the clubs entered the season in debt, having received a lower-than-expected distribution of ...from the league due to smaller crowds at the 1914 final series. With the attendances expected to be lower during this season... ...it was going to be a tough year to balance the books. There were calls for player payments to be suspended as part of the war effort... ...calling it a travesty that some footballers were being paid more to play a game... ...than British, French or Russian soldiers were receiving for each week... ...that they spent in the trenches defending their country. However, one rational response is that this would have been a return to the shamature and under-the-table payments seen before open professionalism was adopted. One action the VFL took was to postpone the interstate games against South Australia. The South Australian League was very upset at this unilateral, high-handed action from the Victorians and wrote a nasty letter to the League. The League found themselves condemned by some for continuing to play the game in a time of war and now, berated by the South Australians for not continuing to play interstate games. However, Old Boy, writing in the Argus, did point out that the league was ever deaf to criticism and was not likely to take notice of the South Australians, or perhaps any critic for that matter. 1915 saw a significant change in the administration of the VFL. Alex McCracken had been the inaugural president of the league. Since its breakaway from the VFA in 1897, and in partnership with longtime League Secretary Edwin Wilson, he was pivotal in the establishment of the League. However, in April 1915, after 19 years as President, he tendered his resignation due to poor health and died in August. While he may not be as well known as later administrators, he deserves significant recognition for his role in steering the VFL through its formative years, into the strongest league in the country. He was an administrator's administrator, becoming the first ever president of the Essendon Football Club at the age of 17, running his own brewery until it was incorporated into CUB, and the president, chair or patron of at least 20 different organisations and sporting clubs, many of which he was a founder. His successor as president would be Oliver Williams from the Melbourne Football Club, The season opened on Saturday the 24th of April, a day before the Anzacs landed at Gallipoli. St Kilda were wearing their new red, yellow and black jumpers, aligning their colours to the Kingdom of Belgium rather than Germany. And wearing those new colours, they had a win over last year's grand finalist, South Melbourne. Carlton unfurled their premiership flag at Princess Park, where they were hosting Fitzroy in a replay of the second semi-final. Fitzroy were two goals up at three-quarter time, but were held scoreless as Carlton attacked in the last quarter, but just like 1914, the Blues started the season with a draw. After missing the finals in 1914, Collingwood showed they meant business by going to the top of the ladder after round one and staying there for the remainder of the season. South Melbourne struggled to show the form of recent seasons and began to slip down the ladder. Geelong also found 1915 to be a much tougher year than previous seasons and they soon found themselves near the bottom of the ladder and there was not going to be any easy wins against university this year. However, those university players that had made their way to Melbourne were helping that club improve their standings and they began to have one of their more successful seasons. There have been many VFL footballers that have excelled in other sports such as cricket, tennis, rowing etc but few have matched the unique triathlon effort of Cyril Gove on Saturday, May 29. His first leg was as a jockey at Moonee Valley at 2pm on the 1400 metre Springbank Corinthian Handicap, where he rode Menthe, a 20-to-1 long shot to third for £5 prize money. He then either caught a taxi or rode a motorbike to Essendon's home ground at East Melbourne. The sources vary on the details. I'm sure he would have preferred... That the Dons were already playing their home games at Windy Hill. At the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, he played his 24th game for Essendon on the wing, and although the Dons came second in this event, losing to South Melbourne by nine points, Gove was noted for playing a good game that day, having the measure of South's Hall of Fame inductee, Mark Tandy. Then, to complete the unique triathlon, Gove is reported to have headed off to Festival Hall to compete in an amateur boxing match, albeit The evidence for the third league is a bit thin on the ground, it's still a great story, and one that would never be matched in this modern era of specialisation. Round 7 at the start of June saw the return of a split round for the King's birthday long weekend, with just two games on the Saturday and two on the Monday. The players glad not to have to turn up after a two-day break, like previous seasons. Carlton hosted Collingwood at Princess Park and won a most remarkable game by two points. Collingwood's champion forward, Dick Lee, kicking nine out of the Magpies' ten goals. He also hit the post twice in a dominant display. St Kilda's fall from their 1914 form was demonstrated the following round against Carlton. At quarter time, the Saints were in the game. One goal, one, versus the Blues on two goals, three. However, the Saints did not score for the rest of the game, giving the Blues a comfortable win. In early July, it was reported by The Age that the league had had private discussions about ending the season and holding the finals with the teams currently in the top four. But the motion was ruled out of order. The Herald published that afternoon contained an article denying that any such discussion had occurred. The constant news of casualties and the reality that the war was not going to be over in months was having an impact. Some country leagues were also discussing abandoning the season, where it was reported that some young men were delaying their enlistment until the end of the football season. Ballarat ended their season in July. The Bendigo League voted on the matter early in the month and the decision was made to continue. However, by late July, they also made the decision to abandon the season. The VFA decided in mid-July to end their season early and move directly to finals. On the 21st of July, the league met to formally consider the proposal of ending the season and moving straight to finals. The arguments for and against could be summarised as the need to concentrate all efforts on the war and remove any distractions from recruitment, and the alternative viewpoint being that many players had already enlisted, nothing was stopping them from doing so, and football provided a cheap morale boost and a distraction from the worries of the war. The motion to shorten the season was carried by a majority of 10 votes to 8. But, because this was short of the three-quarters majority required for such a decision, the season continued as planned. The change in mood can be seen in the comparison to the vote on the same issue before the season started, which was in favour of the season continuing by 13 votes to 4. The attitude of club delegates had shifted significantly but not by enough to cause a change. Back to some football action. In round 16, South Melbourne were playing Melbourne at the MCG. South had to win to have any chance of breaking into the final four. Late in the final quarter, Melbourne were in front by one point. South's George Payne, a large man playing in the ruck, was penalised for a high tackle on Melbourne's Len Insignieri. Clearly unhappy with the treatment, despite being awarded the free kick, Insignieri lashed out and knocked pain out. This was too much for the South supporters and between 1 to 2,000 spectators swarmed onto the ground. For 10 minutes, play was held up. A half a dozen police officers and a few soldiers tried in vain to restore order. Some players from both sides sensibly retreated to the change rooms. Others grabbed overcoats and ran round trying to keep warm. And a few youngsters grabbed the match ball and had some fun playing kick-to-kick in the middle of the MCG on a Saturday afternoon. Eventually, Payne revived and was awarded a free kick, the ball being recovered from the kick-to-kick, kick, and the game commenced. Whereupon, the crowd vanished from the field, now not wanting to stop South from getting in front of Melbourne. The end result was a win for South by one goal, which gave them hope again of making the finals if they could win every game, and Melbourne managed to lose against Essendon the following week. The result for Lenin Signieri was a trip to the tribunal, where he pleaded guilty, under provocation, and while dazed, he was suspended for eight weeks, effectively ending his playing career. Round 17, the second last week of the home and away season, had a few interesting games. South Melbourne travelled to Geelong and had a win as expected. Then, despite only having won two games for the season, Essendon did South Melbourne a huge favour by defeating Melbourne who were perhaps still recovering from the loss of Insignieri, or perhaps still shaken up after being attacked by South Melbourne supporters. This meant that South just had to win the final game of the season, albeit against top-of-the-table Collingwood, to sneak into the four at the last minute. And all Melbourne would be able to do is watch. They had the bye for the final round, so they could not influence events at all. But before we get to the final round, the other game of interest in round 17 was between St Kilda who had the bye, and North Melbourne, the VFA premiers for 1915, the VFA finals having been completed early due to the VFA truncating their season as a contribution to the war effort. North Melbourne were the team that many had thought might have been invited to replace University at the start of the season. The game was to raise funds for the care of wounded soldiers. There was a crowd of over 10,000 at the Junction Oval, with players and officials donating their services for free. But St Kilda were not happy that some of the players pulling on North Melbourne jumpers came from Williamstown, Port Melbourne, and the Essendon VFA team. North explained that they had some injuries and some suspended players to replace, and that they were also playing the game with 18 on the field, as per VFL rules, rather than the 16 aside that the VFA used at this time. St Kilda protested, They had to cover their own injuries and use their own reserves. But they went ahead with the game. Now, while many charity matches are played in a good spirit, with a policy of low-impact tackling, this game was full of rough play, fights, elbows and bitterness. Perhaps there was too much pride at stake. St Kilda did not want to be seen as a VFL team losing to a VFA side. A VFA side that had stacked its team with ring North were the reigning premiers of their competition, playing a team that had only won five games. Perhaps North also wanted to show that they should have already been in the VFL. North won 8 goals 9 to St Kilda's 4 goals 7, while the contribution to the Wounded Soldiers charity was welcomed and the efforts of players and officials donating their time was appreciated. The game disappointed many, other than the North Melbourne supporters. Unlike 1914, this was a much more settled season. After Round 6, the top four remained the same for the entire season, and this did not change despite South Melbourne's hopes of a last-minute entry into the finals by beating Collingwood. The Lakeside Oval had become a military camp, and the grandstand was occupied by the army. Still, the game proceeded as planned, and Collingwood won easily, showing why they had been on the top of the ladder all season, with just two losses. They now had the valuable right of challenge, and they'd be taking on Fitzroy in the second semi-final. The first semi would be between the reigning premiers Carlton, who also had a strong season, only losing two games as well, but behind the Magpies due to the draw that they had at the start of the season, and Melbourne, who were playing finals for the first time since 1902. The addition of the remaining university players had led to better improvements than expected at the start of the season. The first semi-final was on Saturday the 28th of August. Carlton had comfortably beaten Melbourne twice in the season and was considered warm favourites to do the same again. The players wore black armbands to honour Alex McCracken, who had been the VFL's president for 19 years and had died in the week before the finals. The Saturday was a dismal day for football and the ground was described as a combination of mud and slush, so the small crowd of 14,400 might not have been too much of a surprise. Melbourne actually led the game for three quarters and were a goal up at the start of the last quarter. But the Blues were stronger for longer and had the advantage of the win, to kick four goals and win by 11 points, 11 goals, 12, 78, to Melbourne, 10 goals, 7, 67. The second semi was between long-time neighbouring rivals, Collingwood and Fitzroy. Collingwood had won both of the games earlier in the season, and were the clear favourites. The umpire was once again Jack Elder, who now had umpired both semi-finals. The crowd of 25,000 on another dull, wet day reflected the popularity of the two clubs, providing a creditable-sized crowd in the new, normal time of war. The crowd included a large number of soldiers who were admitted at no charge, albeit there was some confusion at the gates concerning these arrangements and the game turned out differently to what was expected to happen. Collingwood seemed to have abandoned their famed system of accurate passing, precision and clever play for a more physical confrontation with Fitzroy. Instead, it was the Maroons that outwitted, outpaced and outplayed their opponents. The longer the game went, the further ahead Fitzroy moved. The final scores were Fitzroy 9 goals 16, 70, to Collingwood's 4 goals 12, 36. Fitzroy were coming good at the right end of the season and would take on Carlton in the preliminary final with the winner to take on the Magpies using their right of challenge for the premiership. The preliminary final on Saturday the 11th of September saw Carlton and Fitzroy in front of 30,630, easily the largest crowd for the season. Jack Elder again had control of the game. During the season there'd been a draw in the opening round Then Fitzroy won the rematch at their Brunswick Street Oval. For the first half of the game, it was a fast, even matchup, with both teams playing attractive football. As the game wore on, it seemed that Carlton had the advantage, but the Maroons stayed close enough to give themselves hope. But, as in the first semi-final, Carlton were stronger for longer. The Blues were two goals up at three-quarter time, and despite an early goal by the Maroons, Carlton moved further ahead in the final quarter to win by 16 points. Six goals, eighteen, fifty-four, to Fitzroy five goals, eight, thirty-eight. The grand final was a match-up between Collingwood and Carlton, a replay of the controversial, violent grand final of 1910 that sowed the seeds for the fierce rivalry between these two clubs, and nearly saw the MCG become the venue for a full-scale riot. Collingwood had won that premiership; Carlton would be looking to even the score. The choice of the umpire for the big game caused some surprise. Jack Elder had control of all three finals, but the grand final was awarded to Arthur Norden. Beginning his umpiring career in 1905, Norden had umpired a semi-final in his first year. For reasons unknown, he was off the scene from 1908 to 1911, but returned in 1912. With Jack Elder getting the nod every year except 1914, Norden had to wait for his chance. But 1915 was his time. Not everyone was a supporter of Norden. Jack Worrell wrote after the grand final. He evidently loves the music of the whistle, which jarred on everyone's nerves. Norden would umpire until 1921 and become umpire's coach in 1923, a position he held for 17 years, possibly one of the longest-serving umpire's coaches in VFL AFL history. The Blues captain was Alf Board leading the side at the tender age of 22, playing in just his 53rd game. He had taken over the captaincy after Billy Dick had been suspended earlier in the season. Board was one of many players whose careers were cut short by World War I. He enlisted after the grand final, suffering a serious shrapnel wound to the head that ended his career. Like many, he only got to show a little of what he could have achieved, but he was very well regarded. Roy Cazaley said that Board made triple Brownlow medalist and triple Sandover medalist Hayden Bunton look ordinary. Board maintained his connection to football though, spending time as chairman of selectors at Carlton and serving 19 years on the VFL Tribunal. Despite his war injuries, he lived to the ripe old age of 94, dying in 1986. Collingwood's captain was Dan Minogue, playing at centre-half back, while Jock McHale was the playing coach in the centre. Minogue had an interesting playing career, starting with Collingwood in 1911, where his 12th game was the grand final loss to Essendon, when he stayed on the ground for the whole match and kicked a goal, despite breaking his collarbone in the first quarter. He was made captain in 1914 at just 22, but already respected as a leader. Then, after the interruption of World War I, he transferred to Richmond as captain coach in 1920, unhappy with the way that the Magpies had treated a close teammate, Jim Sadler. Some Collingwood supporters could never forgive Minogue for his move. In the club rooms, his picture as captain was turned to face the war. Minogue's move is credited by some as the start of the intense rivalry between Richmond and Collingwood that would grow over the years. Minogue also coached at Hawthorne, pulling on the boots for one game, before coaching at Carlton, St Kilda and Fitzroy. A player for three clubs and a coach at five. A unique record. Collingwood had been on top of the ladder all season and were desperate to win the premiership. Their team selection, though, created something of a sensation. The first surprise was a call-out to Ted Rowell, who had retired the year before, but was now returning to his usual spot of full-back after a year out of the game. Other selection highlights included the choice of their rucks, Paddy Rowan and Mal Seddon. Both had played 15 games during the year, but had enlisted in the Army. Collingwood's secretary drove his car all the way to Broadmeadows, to the Army training camp to collect the players. The problem was that both had been part of a 16 kilometer route march that morning, ordered by an officer who many swear was a Carlton supporter. In their two earlier games in the season, Carlton had won both, the only team to defeat Collingwood in the home and away season. But each game was incredibly close. In Round 7, Carlton won by two points, and in Round 16, it was a one-point victory. Both teams were considered potential champions by the press. There was no outright favourite. And the football record had made a small innovation this final series, in something that we take for granted today. Rather than just showing the numbers in the club list, they also, after the best part of three seasons, put players' numbers onto the team layouts for the first time. The curtain raiser before the main game was the state school final between Fairfield and Albert Park. Neither team could score a goal, and Fairfield won their premiership by kicking three behinds. To Albert Park's two behinds. It must have been an odd game to watch. The grand final had attracted the largest crowd of the year, 39,211. And again, there were many servicemen in khaki making up the crowd, and perhaps sending a message that the average soldier was glad that the season had continued to this point. The Blues had the wind in the first quarter and did most of the attacking. Umpire Norden was taking a strict interpretation of the rules, and free kicks were plentiful. Collingwood were more efficient with their moves into the forward line, and Dick Lee was shooting straight. The quarter-time score had Carlton on two goals five to Collingwood, three goals straight. In the second quarter, Blues supporters' hopes began to rise. There was still a long way to go, but they were getting the ball down to their forward line much more than Collingwood. The Magpies did score a goal, though, through a running shot to Gus Dobry. But when the half-time break came, it was the Blues looking stronger. Six goals six, 42, to Collingwood, four goals two, 26. The third quarter saw a more competitive game. The wind had moved round, providing less advantage to the Blues. Towards the end of this quarter, it was Collingwood maintaining the attack, and the forward pocket Les Hughes received one of the many free kicks still being distributed by the umpire, and scored the Magpies' fifth goal. The Magpie supporters were even more excited by some stunning play by their favourite Dick Lee. The Carlton fullback had played on from a kick-in. Dick Lee was onto him like a shot chasing him down and dispossessing him near the boundary line, picking the ball up and, running into goal, pierced the big sticks. The noise was intense, but the cheers quickly turned to jeers. The boundary umpire said the ball had gone over the boundary line. The fine piece of play had been for nothing. The ball was thrown in and Carlton cleared it away from the danger zone. The three-quarter time break had the crowd in suspense. Collingwood had held the Blues down to just two points while scoring one goal seven. The game was evenly poised. One quarter to go, and both teams had the opportunity to win. Carlton were on six goals 8-44, five points up to Collingwood on five goals nine thirty-nine. 39 The Magpies' supporters cheering and yelling reached a new height when Dick Lee scored his third goal and put them a point ahead. They'd been the leading team all season, and now they were in front at the business end of a grand final. But the Blues had been near the top of the ladder all season, had beaten Collingwood twice, and were the reigning Premiers. They were still a young side too. Maybe not the nine first-year players like 1914, but still, youth was on their side. And maybe that would come into their favour as the game went on. There was an intense period of play. It seemed that everyone realised that whoever kicked the next goal would win the game. Collingwood's Tom Clancy had a shot from about 50 metres out. On a good day, he might have scored that much-needed goal to break the game open for the Magpies. But, late in the game, his drop kick skewed off his boot into the arms of a Carlton player 10 metres away, and the Blues were off. A fast series of passes saw the ball kick towards half-forward flanker Herb Burley. But the ball slipped through his hands. Well, at least, that's what most people saw. But umpire Norton paid the mark. In front of goal. When the Blues needed it the most... If you were a Collingwood supporter, you would be cursing the decision. Carlton Parricas perhaps took satisfaction that for the second year in a row, in the grand final, late in the fourth quarter, a controversial decision had gone in their favour. Herb Burley kicked straight through the middle, and the Blues were back in front. Then it was as if the elastic band that had maintained the tension snapped. Perhaps it was a disappointing decision, Perhaps it was the energy of a younger team. Perhaps having two key Collingwood players complete a 16-kilometer route march with full packs on their backs on the morning of a grand final—that sergeant, he was a Carlton supporter, wasn't he? All contributed. Whatever it was, the Blues got onto a roll. Burley got the next goal, followed by Vin Gardner at full forward. Then Herb Burley took another stunning mark and followed up with another goal and then there were two more to the Blues. In a stunning effort, Herb Burley kicked four goals in the last 15 minutes or so of the game. Collingwood players and their supporters were left stunned, wondering what had just happened to the game that they led early in the fourth quarter. Final scores were Carlton, 11 goals 12, 78, to Collingwood, 6 goals 9, 45. A scoreline that looks like a one-sided affair, but a game that was tight until the last 15 minutes. The Blues were Premiers again. For the second time, they had gone back-to-back and they joined Fitzroy as the leading club of the VFL with five Premierships each. There was no interstate trip to Adelaide as in previous years. Instead, the week after the Grand Final, a fundraising match was held again for the wounded soldiers. The Premiers, Carlton, took on a combined soldiers team made up of league players that were in training in the various camps around the city. About 6,000 people attended, And the soldiers got most of the support, but the Blues won the game, 13 goals 11 to ten, nine. Many of those on that field would soon be heading off to foreign battles, and not all would return. One poignant story involves the good mates from Collingwood that had to complete that infamous route march on the morning of the grand final. Paddy Rowan was killed in France in 1916, leaving behind a wife and a son who had been born while he was away on service. His mate, Mal Seddon, had promised to look after Louisa and Percy. In 1921, he and Louisa married, and they had two more children of their own. That was 1915. Carlton were premiers of a season that some had said should not be played. The majority of EFL clubs had voted to have the season shortened, but not the three quarters required. However, the finals had drawn decent crowds of civilians and soldiers, Clearly there was a demand for football as a reminder of normality and a chance for something positive amidst the turmoil. Something normal while everything else seemed mad. Join me next time as we look at 1916, the 20th year of the VFL, as they deal with one of the most challenging and unusual seasons in their history. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to provide some feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.